Welcome to another episode of Yay, Nay or Ma, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is the cinema edition of this podcast, in the mildly new format I've introduced in the last couple of weeks. So I have three films to talk about in this particular episode, all of them released at the cinema this past weekend. Officially released this past weekend, we have the kid-friendly musical with songs by the same people who did The Greatest Showman and La La Land. That is Lyle Lyle Crocodile. We have a biopic of one of the titans of feminist literature in Emily. And technically released this coming weekend, although there are enough quote-unquote preview screenings that it was all but released this week, we have the award-winning film from the South Korean auteur Park Chan-wook, that is Decision to Lee. So, three films to discuss in this particular episode, and without further ado, let's get on with today's reviews. Cinema Reviews Lyle Lyle Crocodile is a family-friendly musical directed by Josh Gordon and Will Spack, who have a background in somewhat puerile but mainstream comedies. They, in the past, have directed Blades of Glory, The Switch, and Office Christmas Party. Weirdly, they also have an Oscar nomination for Best Live Action Short but they seem to have gone down the mainstream, somewhat risky end of the comedy spectrum. And this movie is written by Will Davies, who has worked a lot in the past with Rowan Atkinson. He has written the Johnny English movies and also was involved in Man vs. B. He also has a background in animation. Will Davies wrote the original How to Train Your Dragon, and was also involved in the writing of Flushed Away and the original Puss in Boots. So, Will Davies has a history in this kind of safe, family-friendly entertainment. Lyle Lyle Crocodile is based on a pair of books written in the 1960s by Bernard Waber. The House on East 88th Street and Lyle Lyle Crocodile were two children's picture books which featured this character, Lyle the Crocodile and it has been enormously successful for the past 50-odd years. And now it is being brought to the screen as a musical, with songs written by Paysack and Paul, who really have become the go-to songwriters for modern Broadway and Hollywood. I mean, it's basically Benj Paysack and Justin Paul, or it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. I mean, those are the two groups who tends to get mainstream attention as songwriters nowadays. I was supposed to Lopez is who did Frozen. You could also add to that list, but regardless, Paysack and Paul have some brand new songs written for this movie, being performed by Sean Mendes, which is no 
small feat. This film adapts both of the Lyle the Crocodile books with a new family, the Prims, moving to New York in this big Manhattan brownstone. Father Scoot McNary has just got a job as a maths teacher at a prestigious girls' school, and his wife Constance Wu has published some cookbooks in the past, but is currently concentrating on raising their son, the very, very anxious Winslow Fegley, who was Timmy Failure a couple of years ago. He's also appeared in things like Night Books and 8-Bit Christmas. But he is a very anxious young boy whose life is changed when he discovers that in the attic of this brownstone lives a gigantic CGI crocodile who can sing with the voice of Sean Mendes. And the previous tenant of this big brownstone, Javier Bardem, was an aspiring stage performer who wanted to have a double act with this crocodile, but the crocodile suffers from massive stage fright. So he lost his house when his financial backers pulled the plug. And now Javier Bardem wants once again to get his crocodile Lyle back on the stage. But maybe Lyle just wants a family with Scoot McNary, Constance Wu and Winslow Fagley. So will it all work out in the end, particularly when the neighbour in the basement, Brett Gelman, the character is called Mr. Grumps, is constantly trying to get rid of this family and the crocodile because they interfere in his quiet life and interfere in the life of his pedigree Persian cat. So will it all work out in the end? I wasn't hugely interested in this. I mean, this wasn't one of those things that I was dying to get to, but the idea of having some new songs by Paysack and Paul in a cinema screen, I mean, that was enough. That was just enough for me to get in the cinema screen. And yes, I mean, it is typical Paysack and Paul stuff. I mean, they tend to have a pretty standard style, a pretty standard pattern for their songs but it's a pattern that works. I wouldn't say that the songs in this movie are particularly special or particularly memorable, but they are good enough, and I fully expect at least a nomination for at least one of these songs. I mean, given the profile of this film and given the profile of Pay Second Paul, I would be surprised if this song, Take a Look at Us Now, isn't the major contender for Best Original Song at the Oscars next year. Maybe we started pretty small, but take a look at us now. Take a look at us now. Suddenly standing ten feet tall. Take a look at us now. Take a look at us now. Though we had no way to stay afloat, we were scared they'd say it was us she broke. We're ending on a sky-high note somehow Body, you work all it turns So take a look at us now That is the first time the song is part of the soundtrack and that's a duet between 
Hector P. Valenti, voiced by Javier Bardem, who's, let's face it, not a fantastic singer, and Sean Mendes, who is. I mean, I'm not massively familiar with Sean Mendes. I stopped paying attention to popular music in about 2005, but Sean Mendes is, you know, pop idol material of the modern day, so I'm sure that got plenty of tweens into the cinema screen, and yeah, he's a good singer. And that song, Take a Look at Us Now, recurs several times throughout the course of the film, and it's usually a duet and usually between differing people, and it means different things at different times. I mean, in those terms, in terms of storytelling, I think, yes, it's a well-written song, but I can't honestly say I'll be humming it for the rest of my life. And there's not many other songs in this. I mean, given that you know, Pacek and Paul's songs were part of it, I mean, it's, what, three or four songs in this? And they're not all particularly good. I mean, there's one example. I, I write notes to myself. I've got a little notebook in me in the cinema screen and, you know, sit on the aisle so the dimmed overhead lights, you know, for people wanting to go to the loo or whatever, I can write my notes to myself. And one of the notes I wrote to myself early in the film was a line which seemed very, very relevant to the particular character. I mean, at one point, Constance Wu, who has written cookbooks in the past, says to herself, you know, observes of herself, and I'm paraphrasing, but she basically says, I've been living my life like I'm following a recipe. I thought, okay, that's that's something to make note of. That's something that, you know, gives us character beats. And within a few scenes, Constance Wu and Sean Mendes have a duet called Rip Up the Recipe, where they're sort of having fun in the kitchen and, you know, just throwing things into the mix, you know, not carefully measuring as Constance Wu has been up until this point and, you know, being very, very concerned about what's healthy and what's right. No, let's just have some fun. And it's Rip Up the Recipe. So it's pretty blunt, pretty basic stuff. I mean, having that observation by Constance Wu, I've been living my life like I'm following a recipe, and then having a song a couple of scenes later, that refutes that. So, pretty simple, I would say. But I would still be very, very surprised if Take a Look at Us Now is not at least nominated for Best Original Song at the Oscars next. But we shall have to see, because that is one of those notoriously difficult-to-predict categories. But anyway, I mean, yeah, that's the main reason I wanted to see this and it it basically achieved the limited expectations i had for it i mean there are some pretty standard themes like forcing your own personalities your own interests onto the next generation i mean like javier bardem is this song and dance man who is determined i have a singing crocodile of course i'm going to be famous i'm going to go on stage but lyle has crippling stage fright and scoot mcnary nowadays he's a maths teacher but when he was in high school and college he was a wrestler you know an amateur wrestler so he's forcing his son winslow fagley to be a wrestler which he's absolutely no good at at all but i was a wrestler so my son shall be a wrestler i mean it's a pretty common theme of passing on your issues to the next generation and it's dealt with reasonably well I also like a a subplot that I spotted in this. With Winslow Fegley, yes, he is a very, very anxious child. He's shy, he's reserved, 
he's just moved to a new school and doesn't know anybody. He's very concerned about you know the the crime statistics in Manhattan and the perils of walking to the subway in New York. And this is exacerbated by the fact he can look that up on his phone. This is a boy whose already existing anxieties have been amplified and wildly magnified by technology. He can look up the crime statistics on Manhattan on his phone. He can see what the traffic is, what the the people surrounding him are. There's actually a really, really nice scene where he is having a conversation with an Alexa, or you know, I'm sure it, it wasn't an actual Alexa, but you know, a, a voice responsive smart speaker. And he's lying in bed saying, and you know, the new noises of Manhattan outside his window. He's constantly saying, What's that? What was that? And the Alexa actually responds to him. I mean, what was that? That was a police siren. What was that? That was a car tire screeching. What was that? Beat. I don't know what that was. This is an Alexa with comic timing. That was actually a really, really nice little scene. See, I I found it interesting that the already existing anxieties were made worse by Winslow Fagley's dependence on technology. So, yeah, that was that was interesting. I also found it interesting that they find a way for this gigantic crocodile who walks on two legs to just walk around the streets of New York by dressing up in University of Florida gear. Because the University of Florida football team is the Gators, and their logo looks very, very much like Lyle the Crocodile. So if you dress up in University of Florida gear, you assume it's just a guy in a suit, which is actually quite clever. And they come across a group of fans of the University of Florida's big rival, the University of Georgia. Every year, the University of Florida and the University of Georgia have a football game, which has come to be known as the world's largest outdoor cocktail party. Or at least it was until recently when political correctness said maybe that's not the best plan. But yeah, having a group of University of Georgia fans with a bulldog, because Georgia are the bulldogs, that was kind of a, a nice little moment. Although quite why some University of Florida and University of Georgia fans would be walking around the streets of New York, I do not know. But that was quite clever. So yeah, I mean, this is exactly what it sets out to be. It sets out to be an entertaining, family-friendly film with some interesting, if trite, messages and some okay to adequate songs by Pacek and Paul. So yeah, it's fine. It's exactly what it is. It doesn't transcend what it is. But that's okay. And Lyle Lyle Crocodile is a family-friendly, safe meh. Next up, we have Emily, which is a biopic of Emily Bronte and is the debut as writer-director for Frances O'Connor, who is mostly known as an actress she was the mother in AI. She was the lead in the 1999 adaptation of Mansfield Park. She's worked a lot on television since then, including having a recurring role on Mr. Selfridge. 
But now she has stepped behind the camera as writer and director of this biopic of Emily Bronte, who is being played by Emma Mackey, one of those actresses who came out of basically nowhere in the last couple of years and is suddenly everywhere. She was on Sex Education on Netflix. She was one of the huge ensemble of Branagh's Death on the Nile. She actually appeared in a French film, Eiffel, recently as well. I mean, she is half French. And she's also got a role in the forthcoming Barbie movie. Now, ordinarily, I wouldn't say that I was interested in a Barbie movie, but this is a Barbie movie written and directed by Greta Gerwig. So that sounds cool. I mean, Margot Robbie is Barbie, and apparently Emma Mackey's going to be in it. So, yeah, that's going to be interesting. But regardless, Emma Mackey has recently become a very, very big deal. And she stars in this movie as Emily Bronte. A young woman living in the wild moors of Yorkshire with her very stern utilitarian vicar Adrian Dunbar, her soon-to-be-famous sisters Charlotte, played by Alexandra Dowling, and Anne, played by Amelia Gething, and the dissolute and angry brother Branwell Bronte, played by Fionn Whitehead. Emma Mackey, Emily, is a strange girl. I mean, she is described as the strange one in the village of Haworth in the Yorkshire Moors. Very anxious, very concerned with the outside world. I mean, every time she tries to leave this small parsonage in the middle of nowhere, she gets terrible homesicknesses and has to come home. But she does write. She has this vivid imagination and from youth has been writing these fantastical stories. Which is not encouraged by her father, Adrian Dunbar. I mean, if you cannot be useful, you don't have a place in this world. So she is being encouraged to go off and be a a governess or a teacher somewhere, be useful. But that's just not the life that young Emily wants. And maybe a different option comes with a new and staggeringly handsome curate comes to work at her father's parish, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. And an antagonistic relationship starts between Emma Mackey and Oliver Jackson Cohen. She, the free-spirited, imaginative girl. He, the very conservative, very prudish preacher. But a relationship forms between these two, but it cannot end well. And, I mean, if you know the historical story, you know, and, you know, the opening scene of this film is essentially Emily Bronte dying. She died when she was 30 years old, having left the world one of the great gothic novels in Wuthering Heights. And this is the story, or a story, of Emily Bronte in the build-up to writing Wuthering Heights. This is one of those frustrating biopics which puts a very direct causal relationship between the incidents in an author's life and the material they would end up writing. There are aspects of both 
Emma Mackey's severely alcoholic brother, Fionn Whitehead, and this very stern, very prudish curate played by Oliver Jackson Cohen. You think, oh, yeah, that bit is exactly like Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights. And the relationship between Emily Bronte and this curate Waitman forms the basis of the relationship between Cathy and Heathcliff. And that's just too simple for me. Particularly since, as far as I can tell, this guy Waitman didn't exist. He is a fiction made up for this biopic by Francis O'Connor. Because, ultimately, there wasn't a great deal of interesting incident which happened in any of the Bronte sisters' lives. But they did end up writing these really great novels. So there must have been something interesting. So let's just make shit up. And having this fictional curate come in and be devastatingly sexy and handsome and he speaks his sermons with such poetry. There's a really great scene where this new curate, played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, is preaching to this tiny Yorkshire congregation for the first time. And he starts talking about the rain and and how he was walking through the rain and he he felt, you know, God in nature. He felt God in, in the water. And all of the women in the congregation are hanging on his every word, including Charlotte and Anne Bronte, played by Alexandra Dowling and Amelia Gething. But, you know, all the middle aged ladies are enraptured by the handsome curate. Emily. Oumaki kind of likes the poetry of what he's saying. She's not really that bothered about the religious aspects of it, but the poetry of the language she's impressed by. So, yeah, right from the start, we we have this disconnect between all the other women being attracted to the physical presence of this very, very handsome man, whereas Oumaki is much more interested in the words, in the attitude of this person. I think there's an argument to be made. I mean, I think this is a, a reasonable argument to be made about the real life of Emily Bronte, but I think Emma Mackey is definitely playing her as if she is a little bit neurodivergent, a little bit on the autistic spectrum. She doesn't look anybody in the eye. In fact, it, it's a comment made later in the film by Oliver Jackson Cohen, you are always looking at your feet. She's very, very anxious around new people. She doesn't like going anywhere that's new. I mean, every time she tries to go to one of the schools or one of the governess jobs that her sisters have, she is miserable and needs to come home immediately. She needs structure. She needs order. She has these vivid imagination, which she's been writing since she was a child. And I think there's a decent argument to be made that Emily Bronte was a little bit neurodivergent. And I think Emma Mack is playing it as such. So the relationship that eventually develops between Emma Mack and Oliver Jackson Cohen, the very confrontational relationship at the start, which eventually turns into a physical relationship and a romantic attachment. But of course, it doesn't end well because we don't know this guy in the historical record, so he needs to be written out of the whole thing. It, it is the biopic trick to have the direct causal relationship between the incidents in the life and the material that they ended up writing. And it's also a consistent trap of biopics that, of course, there needed to be some romantic interest. And maybe there wasn't. 
you don't need to have a romantic relationship to write about this tragic gothic romance between Heathcliff and Cathy. But apparently Frances O'Connor felt that there needed to be a tragic romance in Emily Bronte's life in order for her to write those things in Wuthering Heights. And I don't necessarily buy it. And yeah, I don't necessarily buy a lot of this film. I don't buy the relationship between Emma Mackie and Oliver Jackson Cohen, particularly when yeah, I'm pretty sure that never happened in real life. But I do find the relationships elsewhere in the film rather interesting. I mean, Charlotte Bronte, played by Alexandra Dowling, is played as somewhat of a villainous character. There reaches a situation where Alexandra Dowling can pretty much spot, oh, there's something going on between my sister and the curate. So she deliberately sets up situations which are essentially cock-blocking her sister. She is determined, oh, well, that can't happen, so we need to stop that. And in dialogue, Charlotte says to Emily at one point, Try not to be a burden. Charlotte is being played as the exasperated older sister who just cannot deal with her strange sister. And yeah, it's really interesting the rivalry that these two have, including a very, very cool moment. I mean, towards the end of the film, Emily Bronte has written Wuthering Heights. She you know, puts down her quill on her desk, and Anne Bronte, played by Amelia Gething, comes in, sits down, and starts reading the original manuscript of Wuthering Heights. And then the next scene is Charlotte Bronte, Alexandra Dowling, coming into the kitchen with the manuscript, handing the manuscript to Emma Mackey, and then immediately falling to her knees, crying, saying, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you having handed the manuscript back. And then Anne Bronte comes in the kitchen, looks at her sister crying on the floor and says, oh, I see you finished it then. Which was a lovely little scene and a scene which absolutely does not fit in with the rest of this movie. It is, it's very much about the problematic and arguably toxic relationship between Emily Bronte and her brother Branwell Bronte, who was an opium addict, a dissolute drinker, a lifelong alcoholic, basically, who had a lot of the traits of Heathcliff. It's well been established that Branwell Bronte was the primary inspiration for Heathcliff and Wuthering Heights. But to make it quite so direct, I think, was was pushing the envelope a little bit. So, yeah, I get the desire to want to make a film about somebody like Emily Bronte. But if there isn't enough for an actual film, having to make shit up in order to make it a film, I don't think that's necessarily worth it. So, yeah, I... I I can't really get on board with this biopic, Emily. It's well-made enough, it's well-acted enough. I think, you know, the acting performances all round are very good. I just don't buy it as a historical document. And you need to at least partially buy it as a historical document for a biopic to work. So yeah, as far as I'm concerned, Emily is a well-made film, a well-acted film, but in what it is trying to do, it is a failure. So for me, Emily, available in cinemas, is a pretty low, not strongly recommended, meh.
The last movie released cinematically this week, as I said, basically in previews, is Park Chan-wook's new film, Decision to Leave. I think there is a strong argument to be made that Park Chan-wook is one of the great auteurs of modern-day world cinema. He's the Korean director who first came to international prominence with his 2003 film Old Boy, part of a loose Vengeance trilogy with Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and Lady Vengeance. And since then, he has done things like Thirst, the English-language film Stoker, and The Handmaiden, which I genuinely think is a masterpiece. It did win the BAFTA for Best International Feature that year, but Korea didn't even submit it to the Oscars, which is one of those baffling decisions which occasionally come up in the foreign language slash international feature category. But regardless, I believe The Handmaiden is a masterpiece. And Park Chan-wook returns to directing feature films with this latest movie, Decision to Leave, which premiered at the Cannes Film Festival this year, and Park Chan-wook won the Palme d'Or for Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival for this year. It has been submitted to the Oscars by career, and I would be very surprised if it doesn't at least make the 15-film long list. So this is a high-profile prestige international feature, and I wanted to see it as early as possible. We are in Busan in Korea, where Park Hae-il is a workaholic and insomniac police detective. He has a long-distance marriage with his wife Jung Yi-seo because she works at a nuclear power plant in a city some distance away, so they only ever see each other at the weekends. And because of this long-distance relationship and these long drives, Park Hae-il has difficulty sleeping. And his latest murder case, or suspicious death case, that crosses his desk in Busan is a man who has seemingly fallen off a mountain to his death. This is a death that needs investigating, but it looks like an accident. But they do need to interview the dead man's wife, a Chinese immigrant played by Tang Wei. And this man used to work in the immigration department, so this 60-odd-year-old man having this beautiful young Chinese wife, it's a little bit suspicious. It's also increasingly suspicious when it becomes apparent that this man was abusing his younger Chinese wife. But she seems to have a perfectly solid alibi. And the case is also complicated by the fact that Park Hae-il is instantly attracted to Tang Wei and the manipulations and the mind games and the attraction, the mutual flirting between these two people becomes more and more apparent to everybody around them, including Park Hae-il's hot-headed co-detective Go Kyung-pyo. But it looks like it's an open and shut case. But how open and shut is it? And then, even when Park Hale ends up in a different town, he transfers to the tiny town where his wife works, 
Tangway also shows up there, and also there's a death associated with her there as well. So how much of these deaths are coincidence? And can Park KL see the wood for the trees when he is clearly deeply attracted to this young Chinese suspect? In a lot of ways, Decision to Leave is an example of a very specific genre. This is a film noir, but specifically it is a Hitchcockian film noir, and even more specifically, this is Vertigo. This is a film about obsession. Utter, all-consuming, all-powerful obsession. And how, when you are obsessed with somebody, you can't really have the detachment to properly investigate them. And it's clear to everybody around them that that's what's going on. I mean, it is made note of by Park Hae-il's hot-headed younger colleague, Go Kyung-pyo. Hang on a minute. Yes, we need to get this suspect lunch, but do we really need to get some really fancy, really expensive sushi to share with Tang Wei? What's going on here? And, you know... He's not wrong. It's very, very obvious right from the start that Park K.L. is into Tang Wei. He instantly has this chemistry. He instantly has this obsession with this attractive younger Chinese woman. And the longer the investigation goes on, I mean, yes, it looks like she's got a solid alibi, but surely we need to be paying a little bit more attention to her. So, I know, let's stake her out. So basically, there's extensive scenes where Park Hae-il is you know, on a stakeout outside Tang Wei's apartment, but at what point does a stakeout become stalking? Pretty quickly, as it turns out. And the, the interplay between these two people is fascinating to see because it's clear exactly what's going on. Park Hae-il has become obsessed with this Chinese woman. And let's not forget... He is married. I mean, yes, he only sees his wife at the weekends, and it doesn't seem like a particularly unhappy marriage. Equally, it doesn't seem like a particularly happy marriage. But, you know, there is the distance thing. There is the detachment. I mean, his wife self-describes herself as a science nerd. You know, there's a newspaper headline up on the wall, you know, youngest engineer ever at this nuclear power plant. So, She's a very logical, very analytical person. There's not a great deal of passion there. But they're safe, they're comfortable, I mean, they're, they're together. So I mean, is this obsession that Park Hae-il has with Tang Wei, is there something more to it? Is there desire, is there passion for the first time? Whatever it is, it's clear what's going on. And then, of course things start to develop and you start to realize oh there is definitely more going on here i mean there's more to this guy's death than first meets the eye and the whole hitchcockian film noir thing comes in i mean tang wei in a lot of ways is the epitome is an archetype of the femme fatale that is what she ends up being and i have to say tang wei plays it really really well i mean knowing Oh, hang on, this guy's into me. I can, I can use that. I can manipulate that. I mean, she is Chinese, so 
saying, oh, 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 what's that word in Korean? I'm not exactly sure. And then you know, a couple of scenes later, she's saying very complex words in Korean. So you know, how much is she putting on? I mean, the fact that there's extensive scenes where Tang Wei is speaking Mandarin into her phone, into the Google Translate app, and then it comes out in Korean. There's never, ever an interpreter brought into a police interview room, which I'm not exactly sure uh, it, how legal that is, how that would happen. Oh, and it's also also worth pointing out that Park Hae-il's younger colleague, Go Kyung-pyo, A, there's a scene where it looks like he's just about to beat a confession out of a suspect in you know the B plot. There's another investigation that Park Hae-il is investigating at the same time, which wouldn't you know it, has strong thematic parallels with the main plot. But you know, in this B-plot, Go Kyung-pyo is just about to beat a confession out of a suspect before Park Hae-il intervenes. And Go Kyung-pyo also thinks it's okay to get drunk and essentially break into Tang Wei's apartment while she's there and you know, intimidate her into a confession. So, yeah, the Korean police department doesn't come across very strongly in this film. Oh, and also uh, in the second half of the film, where where they're in this small, you know, company nuclear town that Park Hale moves to, there his colleague is a strongly lesbian coded detective, who is completely excluded from the boys' club that is the police department. So I think there's commentary being made there about tolerance and acceptance of queer Korean people as well. But, yeah, the police department does not come across well. But regardless of all that, Tang Wei, it starts to become apparent, has been manipulating the situation. I mean, she can see, as well as you know, everybody around Park Hale, oh, Park Hale's into me, I can use this. So she does. And then, you know, the whole first half of the film has, you know, this, did, did she do it? I mean, she probably did it. But, you know, can... I actually arrest her now. I'm so intimately involved with her. I mean, I I don't think that these two characters ever actually have sex with each other, but that's not really the point. I mean, the emotional connection between these two is so much stronger. And in the second half, when everybody it turns up in this small town Epo, which I think we have tried to do some research, and I think this town Epo with, with the nuclear power plant, I think it's a fictional town. But regardless of, of anything else, they all end up in this small coastal village you know, surrounded by fog. And the case there has even more stuff going on. I mean, now the dynamics have shifted, the things have changed, uh, and she's still acting like the femme fatale. This is very, very strongly Vertigo. This is Hitchcock's Vertigo with a little bit of the TV show Luther wrapped in a little bit of Christopher Nolan's Insomnia. Oh, and there was a Danish version of Insomnia as well, wasn't there? But yeah, it's got all these things in it about how can you separate the deep attraction I have for this suspect with actually trying to investigate her and the obsession and the unhealthy obsession, which eventually comes up. And yeah, I really like the way it happens. I mean, it, it just happens instantly. It, it, Right from the start, no questions asked, Park Hale is clearly attracted to Tang Wei, and everybody around her is just going to have to deal with it. And all of this is directed in Park Chan-wook's inimitable style. There's some really great flashes of 
visual brilliance here. Quite often when there are phone conversations between characters in a scene, the physical presence, you know, an apparition of the person on the other end of the phone will be in the room with you. There's interesting close-ups used. There's interesting angles taken. The B-plot, I mean, the other case that Park Hale is investigating, that culminates in a foot chase, which goes a long distance, both vertically and horizontally. I mean, it's multi-level. They're eventually going up and down roofs as well as Park Hale is chasing this suspect. And that was done in a brilliant visual style. So, yeah. I fully understand why Park Chan-wook won Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. Possibly he might even get an Oscar nomination for Best Director. I mean, there's been a, quite a few foreign language directors who've showed up in the Best Director pool recently. Maybe Park Chan-wook will be another one, but honestly, I think this year Lucas Haunt for the film Close is going to be a much stronger contender. I've already seen that at the London Film Festival, which I'm going to be talking about in a minute. But yeah, Decision to Leave. It's not up to the level of The Handmaiden. It's not up to the level of Old Boy. I wouldn't even say it's up to the level of something like Thirst. I mean, I think it's good, but I wouldn't say it's transcendent. So yeah, it's got some fascinating ideas, albeit they are ideas we have seen Dean before, but you know, an auteur working at the highest levels of world cinema and doing it really, really well. So yeah, Park Chan-wook pulls it off again, and I really do think that Decision to Leave is worth checking out. I think it will be released cinematically this coming week, and eventually it will end up on Mubi.com. But however you see it, I do think that decision to leave is worth it. And for me, it is a very, very high meh. New releases. Somehow, there are an awful lot of new releases this week. There are only three new cinematic films I want to check out. All of them very, very different. I'm guessing it must be half term this week because there's another superhero blockbuster out this week because we can't go two weeks without another superhero blockbuster. But this one is Black Adam, a DC supervillain, really. And it has to be said, a rather obscure DC supervillain. But if you get The Rock to play him, then he gets a movie. But yeah, that's out this week. There's also the new film from Martin McDonough. The Banshees of Inisherin, which reunites Martin McDonough with his In Bruges leads, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell, this time as Irish farmers. It looks like it's set in the first half of the 20th century. Not exactly sure, but Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell have lived on this windswept Irish coast for ages. And then suddenly one day, Brendan Gleeson says to Colin Farrell, his best friend, I don't like you anymore, never talk to me again. So Colin Farrell spends the rest of the film trying to work out what the hell's happened to his friend and why he won't talk to him anymore. So, yeah, Martin McDonough with a typical kind of in Bruges style approach. And the other movie is another very different film. This is the first film that Somalia ever submitted to the Oscars. 
They submitted it to last year's Oscar race in the international feature category, but just taken this long to come out, probably in conjunction with Black History Month. But The Grave Digger's Wife from Somalia is getting a cinematic release. And this Sunday, there's actually an in-person Q&A with the director and the star of the film over at the watershed. So, yeah, I was on the fence about actually going to see it, but now I know there's a director's Q&A, I will make the effort to go over on Sunday and watch The Grave Digger's Wife with a Q&A. As the title suggests, it's about a grave digger who lives in Djibouti City and ekes out an existence digging other people's graves, but his wife is very sick. And without $5,000, or the equivalent of $5,000, his wife will most likely die. So how do you deal with that? And yeah, typical tale of economic deprivation. But with the director's Q&A, I will be checking out The Grave Digger's Wife as well. There's a long, long list of streaming films which are being released for two reasons, largely, I think. A, it's still in the lead-up to Halloween, so spooky films are getting released. And it's also the early foothills of the mountain that is Oscar season, so some Oscar potential films are also getting released. On the Oscar front, released onto Apple TV+, Plus, we have Raymond and Ray, a small-scale family drama starring Ethan Hawke and Ewan McGregor as two long-estranged half-brothers who reunite on the death of their father, their distant, problematic father, because he insists that he wants his two sons to dig his grave for him. And these two different personality types have to do this and find common ground they never knew they had from their problematic father. So, yeah, typical Sundance-esque film. I think it might even have played at Sundance. But anyway, Raymond and Ray is being released onto Apple TV Plus this week. Released onto Amazon Prime this week is Argentina 1985, which has been submitted to the International Feature Oscar by, you've guessed it, Argentina. This tells the true life story of the lawyers who tried to prosecute the members of the Argentinian military junta once democracy was restored in 1985 and the troubles they had to go to. So a combination of political thriller and legal thriller, at least that's what it looks like on the surface. It's a bit of a weird one to show up on Amazon Prime as the primary distribution method, but that's what's happened. So yeah. Argentina 1985 on Amazon Prime has been added to the list as well. On Netflix, there's a couple of films which also have some level of Oscar bars. One of them is a documentary, and Netflix has a pretty good record of getting documentary features, Oscar nominations, and this one looks like enough of a hot-button issue that I think Descendant does have a very good chance of getting on the feature documentary category at the Oscars. It tells the story of a community in Alabama which was founded by people who were rescued from the last slave ship which landed on Alabama. 
landed illegally on Alabama after slavery was abolished. And the people who came off this ship formed this community called Africa Town, which is now surrounded by heavy industry and is basically being throttled out of existence. And while that's going on, the actual wreck of the ship that these people were brought over on is discovered. So what does this mean? How does this affect the way we perceive history and our heritage in this small Alabama community? So yeah, that sounds really interesting. And like I said, I think there's a very strong chance that Descendant will get into the Oscar mix with a little bit of Oscar buzz, but not all that much, is an Australian film called The Stranger. It's got a decent cast with Sean Harris and Joel Edgerton. Sean Harris plays a criminal who is strongly suspected of kidnapping and killing a teenage boy in the past, and in order to try and finally get a confession out of him, Policeman Joel Edgerton goes undercover with him and tries to eke out this confession. But it looks like kind of a Donnie Brasco kind of situation where the policeman becomes so enamoured of the life of the criminal that he finds it difficult to separate the two worlds. Or that seems to be the way it's playing out, although in, in a very bleak and gloomy way, judging by the trailer. But yes, The Stranger has a little bit of Oscar buzz, and that is also being released onto Netflix this week. And on the mainstream end of things, and the spooky Halloween end of things potentially, we have The School for Good and Evil, which I think is based on a YA novel series, which takes the premise that all the characters in fairy tales, whether they be good or evil, went to this one school, and you're split into these are the people who will turn into villains, these are the people who will turn into heroes. And it seems like a kind of a Harry Potter situation where two girls from our modern day are taken to this school and say, right, we're going to be best friends forever. We're, this is so cool. We're going to be fairy tale creatures. And then one of them gets seduced by the dark side, or at least that looks like what it is. It's got a decent cast. I think Charlie's Theron's in it. So yeah, the school for good and evil looks like family friendly. YA Fair. And also released onto Netflix this week is a South African film called The Valley of a Thousand Hills, which deals with a young Zulu woman who has to deal with her heritage and her family and going back to her small village. And also dealing with the fact she's in love with a woman, which is not going to be appreciated by her traditionalist family. So how do you deal with living your true self when you are torn between tradition and the modern world and you know, who you fall in love with? So yeah, that sounds pretty interesting. The Valley of a Thousand Hills. Released onto streaming platforms, we have many, many things. Finally released onto streaming is a film called Emily the Criminal, which I've been looking forward to for quite some time. This played at one of the early festivals, I think it played at Sundance, but it stars Aubrey Plaza, who is an actress I'm a huge fan of. And this seems like a, a much more mainstream, a much more straight-faced role than she usually plays. As a young woman called Emily, who is struggling mightily in the current economic climate. 
desperate for money, she signs up to be basically a scam artist and stealing credit card information, doing low-level scams like that. And gradually, Aubrey Plaza gets increasingly involved and deeper and deeper into the criminal underworld and eventually goes too far. So, yeah, that sounds like an interesting character study slash crime movie. It's possible that this is going to be one of those premium streaming releases, paying £14 or whatever for a rental of it, which I'm not going to do. So if that's the case, then that's going to be put on the back burner. But if it is you know, a standard £3.50 rental, then I might check out Emily the Criminal, though, as I'll be talking about in a minute. I've got a lot of stuff already on my tablet. But yes, Emily the Criminal is finally released this week. As is a film called Slayers, which looks rather interesting. It's kind of a comedy horror thing about a group of influencers and YouTubers who are brought to a remote mansion in the middle of nowhere. Hey, this billionaire wants to do some stuff with him. Maybe you can get some really, really big sponsorship. And these are people like Cara Haywood and Abigail Breslin, you know, recognizable names. And the Factotum, who brings them there, is played by Marlene Ackerman, who is another actress I'm a really big fan of. But then, as they get there, a grizzled vampire hunter, played by Thomas Jane, says, you're in terrible danger, this mansion is riddled with vampires, and they sort of brush him off. But of course, it is riddled with vampires, so Thomas Jane, the grizzled vampire hunter, and Cara Hayward, who is an online gamer, have to team up and rescue all the idiotic influences from a nest of vampires which sounds like it might be fun also released on sir streaming this week is a film called american insurrection which looks like an american liberal's worst case scenario but it could be all the more interesting because of it because of how extreme it gets i mean this is set in a near future world where self-appointed volunteers are going around the country and anybody who isn't white, straight and cisgendered has a barcode tattooed on their neck. And it seems like the government's perfectly okay with these vigilantes going around and doing this. And eventually somebody decides to fight back. So, yeah, the queer and outsider community fighting back violently against these white supremacists essentially who have insidiously taken over the country so yeah looks like that might be a little bit of a a knee-jerk worst case scenario reaction but also looks like it might be fun so yeah that's been added to the list although that is one of those ones i think might end up on netflix or sky cinema fairly recently so american insurrection is on the list but i'm gonna hold off on that one there's also a really cool action comedy from japan released onto streaming platforms called baby assassins about two teenage girls who are roommates but it's a typical odd couple thing they've got very very different personality types they kind of hate each other but have to live together they go to high school together they have you know muck jobs together they also happen to be assassins 
So yeah, two teenage girls who get on each other's nerves who also kill people for a living. And that sounds like it might be kind of fun. And yeah, Baby Assassins from Japan is available on VOD platforms. And I do want to check that out. And also a film called You Won't Be Alone. Now, there's been so many false starts with this film. It's been listed as being released on various different platforms at various different times throughout the year. It looks like You Won't Be Alone is finally going to be widely released this week. Having just played at the London Film Festival last week, it's a film made by an Australian director of Macedonian heritage. And as far as I can tell, even though this film was shot in Australia, it is in the Macedonian language. But it is a story about a witch who, over the course of many years, possibly even many centuries, habitually abducts young girls and then takes over their bodies. And they grow up to be the next generation of witch until the cycle needs to start again. And many of these witches are played by very recognisable international actresses. We have the Swedish actress Naomi Rapace, the Kiwi actress Alice Englert, and the Romanian actress Anna Maria Marinka play various incarnations of this witch who abducts children from Macedonian villages. So, yeah. I've been curious about this film for a very, very long time, and it looks like, finally, it's going to be widely and readily available this week. So, let's see how that works out. But yeah, that's the uh, lengthy list of new releases this week. But the cinematic releases, which will be part of the next cinematic edition of Ye Naomar, will be The Banshees of Inisherin. Black Adam and the Grave Digger's Wife. The Two Watch List. As well as that boatload of new releases I've just come through, my watching schedule has also been complicated by the fact that I've been watching lots of films associated with the London Film Festival this year as well. I've watched three films recently over in the Watershed Cinema in Bristol that were put on as part of the London Film Festival's touring programme. And I also got myself a load of online screeners for the London Film Festival. At time of recording, I've watched two out of the four films I bought on streaming. So, yes, watching stuff at the London Film Festival has also taken up some of my time. And there will be a London Film Festival special episode coming at some point in the near future. Despite that, and despite the cinema trips I've made this week, I have already watched several streaming films at home, which I'll be recording about forthwith. And in the next streaming edition of Ye Naomi, I will be reviewing the VOD film Alice Runs Away the Netflix film Rainbow, the Amazon Prime films Catherine Called Birdie and 13 Lives, and the Sky Cinema film The Immaculate Room. And who knows, by the time I actually get to record it, I might have added a few more to that list. But at the moment, my to-watch list consists 
of several films I've downloaded onto my tablet. I've rented onto my tablet from VOD platforms because there was a sale on the Google Play Store. So on my tablet and ready to go, we have the allegorical feminist horror movie Take Back the Night. A small-scale American indie called Summer Issues about a boy going back to his hometown after his freshman year of college and working back in the same comic book store he used to work at in his youth and figuring out where he goes now. There's also the psychological ghost story, possibly here before, with Andrew Reesborough convinced that her neighbour's little girl is actually the reincarnation of her own dead daughter. So, yeah, that could be interesting. And there's also the micro, micro micro-budget horror comedy Val about a succubus who also works as a high-class escort who gets home invaded one night by an inept robber and starts playing mind games with him. So, yeah, it looks like a micro, micro micro-budget horror comedy, but I am intrigued. So those four films I already have on my tablet ready to go, and at some points they will probably be ticked off. I also need to tick off some stuff that has Oscar potential, or at least is listed as having Oscar potential. We have on Apple TV Plus The Greatest Beer Run Ever, which I'm not looking forward to. It's directed by the same guy who did Green Book, and is based, or at least inspired by, a true story of a man in the 1960s who went to Vietnam in order to give all the soldiers from his neighbourhood a beer. Uh, played by Zac Efron. I mean, it sounds like a, an idiotic idea and potentially an idiotic film, but it does have Oscar buzz, so I probably will be checking out The Greatest Beer Run Ever. An Oscar Beatty type film that I am actually rather interested in is Blonde, the biopic of Marilyn Monroe starring Anna de Armas and available through Netflix. So yeah, I'm actually looking forward to that one. And also tangentially Oscar-related, another film that has been released onto Netflix is the Indonesian film Missing Home, which Indonesia actually submitted to the international feature race. So since it's on Netflix, I may as well watch it. And it's a foreign language film on Netflix, so I'll download it onto my tablet the next time I go over to Bristol on the bus, probably to see The Gravedigger's Wife. So yes, I do want to check out the Indonesian Oscar submission Missing Home in which an ageing couple pretend they are getting a divorce in order to force their scattered children back to their home village and actually see their parents. So, yeah, sounds like a reasonably broad comedy, which Indonesia actually submitted to the Oscars. Also on Netflix, we have the somewhat connected documentary features, Into the Deep, The Submarine Murder Case, about the guy who killed a journalist in his homemade submarine, and there was a documentarian following him at the time, and there's some behind-the-scenes footage of this guy and his the people who worked for him as he, you know, committed a murder. So, yeah, that's fascinating. And there's also Running with the Devil, The Wild World of John McAfee, about the internet security billionaire who probably shot and killed his neighbour in Costa Rica, went on the run, and took a film crew with him. So, yeah, that sounds fascinating. And just added to the list, because I think it sounds cool and I want to get to it, is a film called Rosalind, 
which is directed by Karen Mayne, who did Yes, God, Yes, and stars Caitlin Deaver from Short Turn 12 and Booksmart, one of my favourite young actresses. But Rosalind is a YA tongue-in-cheek take on Romeo and Juliet, because Rosalind was Romeo's ex and the cousin of Juliet, who gets dumped for so the star-crossed lovers can get it on with each other. And what happens when Rosalind attempts to break this new couple up? So yeah, that sounds fun, and that's on my to-watch list because it's fun, and not because of any duty or anything like that. So yeah, that is currently my to-watch list. Who knows, by the time I actually record my next streaming episode, I might have added more things to that list and that list I mentioned earlier. But yeah, that is the end of this particular cinema edition of Yane Omer. And all that remains for me to say is this has been Yane Omer presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I will see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure.